the harsh reality is that if you literally take away criminals from the Bible, there is no Bible. Not only were four of the books of the Bible, Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, Philippians, all written in the midst of incarceration, but literally, if you take away all of the criminals from the gospel, there is no good news for us to inherit. There is no good news for us to share. I mean, literally, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, John the Baptist, Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, Samson, Hananiah the seer, Joseph, Malachi, Stephen, Jeremiah, Peter, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Silas. All of these men were criminals, much less some of the other people who should have been criminals who committed criminal offenses like Moses and David. You're listening to Upside Down, a podcast on spirituality and culture. No topic is off limits, so join us for unscripted conversations on God's Upside Down Kingdom. Welcome to episode 39 of Upside Down Podcast. This is Kayla Craig, and before we get started, I just have to say that I am recording right now on a brand new shiny microphone that hopefully sounds a lot better than what you're used to, and it's all because of you. It is because of our Patreon friends who chipped in, did what they can. Because of that, Shannon, Lindsay, and I now have new microphones that will hopefully be just kind of elevating our game, giving you guys better sounding, better quality uh, podcasts. So thank you. Thank you so much. We're so excited. This episode is going to be a great one. You are going to have so much to chew on, and we hope that you join us at Upside Down Tribe. That is a group that we have for Upside Down Podcast listeners. You can find us on Facebook. We'll let you in. Just search Upside Down Tribe. That's us. Uh, And there's going to be a lot to talk about, so I'm really excited. Lindsay chats with Dominique in this episode, and we're talking about justice that restores and reconciles. We're talking about incarceration. We're talking about hard topics, but Dominique does it with such, gosh, with such grace and with such power. This is going to be an episode that you're going to be talking about for a while. So enjoy this episode and know that when you're listening to Upside Down Podcast, you are joining literally thousands Now, maybe not tens or hundreds of thousands, but every episode, you're joining thousands of listeners here in the United States and across the world who care about these issues of justice, of these issues of mercy and hope in God's kingdom. So thank you for listening. And you may hear a few weird noises in this episode, and that's only because we did not have our new shiny mics when Lindsay talked to Dominique. But going forward, you're going to hear that we have a higher quality and it's because of you guys on Patreon, you're giving and honestly, you're helping pay our fees and make it so everybody can listen to Upside Down Podcasts free of charge. So thank you for linking arms and enjoy this episode of Upside Down Podcast. Well, welcome to this um, special conversation. This is Lindsay and I will be the host for this episode of Upside Down The topic for today's conversation is Rethinking Incarceration with Dominique Gilliard. Um, I'm going to give a snippet of Dominique's bio. It's quite lengthy, but (laughs) Dominique is the director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Love, Mercy, Do Justice Initiative of the Evangelical Covenant Church. He serves on the board of directors for the Christian Community Development Association and Evangelicals for Justice. Dominique is an ordained minister who has served in pastoral ministry in Atlanta, Chicago, and Oakland. He earned a bachelor's degree in African-American studies from Georgia State University and a master's degree in history from East Tennessee State University with an emphasis on race, gender, and class in the United States. He also earned an MDiv from North Park Seminary, where he served as an adjunct professor teaching Christian ethics, theology, and reconciliation. So, Dominique, thanks for joining me tonight for this conversation. Yeah, I'm ecstatic to be on with you and your community. So we're going to be talking about a book that you wrote, and I'm just going to read 
a few sentences, and then I want you to tell us about it. So rethinking incarceration, advocating for justice that restores. Um, So you explore the history and foundation of mass incarceration, examining Christianity's role in its evolution and expansion. And then you kind of lead us through how Christians can pursue justice that restores and reconciles, offering creative solutions and highlighting innovative interventions. So the first question I want to ask you um, is maybe an obvious one, but I think um, it's an it's an important place to start. Why this book? Why was this a book that you needed to write? Well, God really placed a burden on my heart for the conversation. And truth be told, this is not the first book that I was planning on writing. Um, this was this really came into fruition because. I was given a presentation about mass incarceration all across the country uh, because there was, I was just really struck and dismayed by the church's silence on the issue as this kind of reality had become this defining reality of American life to the point that right now, one of the things I point to in the book is most people have heard we have. 5% 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's incarcerated population. But what that actually breaks down to today in our nation is that we have more prisons, jails, and detention centers than we do degree-granting institutions in our nation. And, wow. and because of that, in many places throughout the nation, there are more people who are living behind bars than are living on college campuses. Hmm. And because of that kind of austere reality, um, I was just shocked and dismayed by how eerily silent the church has been around this issue. And so I was given this presentation and there uh, was one of the acquisition editors from InterVarsity Press sat in on my presentation. And after my presentation came up to me and said, this is the book that I've been praying for for the last eight years. And you turn, turn this presentation into a book. And I accept it. And that's kind of how we got to this point. But um, it's a critically, I mean, it's a critically important issue. It's a watershed moment for our nation right now. Right now in our nation, it's predicted that one in three Black men will spend time behind bars in their lifetime. And the number is one in six for Hispanic males. Um, And then on top of that, we know that Presently, African-American men in particular represent 6.5% of the U.S. population, but 40.2% of the incarcerated population. It's interesting when you point out that statistic about the number of prisons, jails, and detention centers compared to the number of degree-granting institutions, and that just makes me think about our priorities, (laughs) right? Like, as a nation, we've put our priority on locking people up and putting them behind bars and detaining them over and above education. Um, So anyway, we'll probably get there later. But for those who don't know, if somebody's new to this conversation, what is mass incarceration? So I really turn to Michelle Alexander's definition for this, and I expand on it a little bit, but I always like to acknowledge that my work really builds upon Michelle's work. And Jim Crow, uh, Brian Stevenson's work with Just Mercy, and another author that's lesser known, his work, uh, Douglas Blackman's work uh, with a book called Slavery by Another Name. But but Michelle Mm -hmm. uh, defines mass incarceration as a system of racial and social control. It is the process by which people are swept into the criminal justice system, branded criminals and felons, locked up for longer periods of time than most other countries in the world who incarcerate people who have been convicted of crimes. And then those people are released into a permanent second class status in which they are stripped of civil, basic civil and human rights, like the right to vote, the right to serve on juries, and the right to be free of legal discrimination in employment, housing, and access to public benefits. And so that's what she talks about mass incarceration Mm -hmm. as. And I just add to that, uh, that mass incarceration is also um, the exploitation of people's labor behind bars for profiteering purposes. 
And so Mm -hmm. I spend a lot more time in my book than any of those books talking about how mass incarceration has really evolved into this lucrative industry that people are making uh, grotesque profits off of. So I want to come back to that. But before I get there, can you kind of I mean, the use the whole first portion of your book is really the history, which I've really appreciated because I think it's important to understand. So I don't know how possible it is, but could you maybe just how did we get here? How did we get to this point? Because I think it's important for people to understand the connection like you just talked about a little bit. Um, how did we get here to this point where we're incarcerating this many people? Yeah, so I think Michelle is critically uh, pointing to something when she talks about a system of racial and social control. But where my book, one of the ways my book really deviates from both hers and Brian's is that I actually say that if we're really going to have an authentic conversation about mass incarceration, we can't start with the war on drugs uh, in 1970s. We actually have to go all the way back. And the first generation of mass incarceration really manifests itself right after Reconstruction ends. So with the abolition of slavery, Mm -hmm. you had a brief period of Black empowerment throughout the South where federal troops were sent into the South during a period of known as Reconstruction to ensure that they had uh, equal playing field and access and no kind of institutional hindrances to actually uh, integrating themselves into the fabric of society. As soon as those federal troops are withdrawn, you actually have this massive scramble uh, for a rearticulation of white supremacy throughout the South. Um, and this art, the this scramble really manifests itself in five different ways. So first, you have sharecropping, which most people are a little bit familiar with. Um, the next thing you have mm-hmm. is this uh, set of restrictive laws that are really really targeting and criminalizing Blackness, which are known as um, Black codes. Uh, And Black codes are literally laws that were applied during slavery known as slave codes, but have been re-inscribed in a way that they can be reapplied after slavery is abolished. So within Black codes, you have African-Americans being criminalized from anything as small as walking too close to a wooden picket fence throughout the South or a vagrancy law that literally says that African-Americans can be incarcerated if they cannot prove that they are employed. And so you get this kind of criminalization of Blackness that leads to a disproportionate number of Black people being arrested. But because of the loophole that exists Mm -hmm. in the 13th Amendment that says that slavery is abolished except as a consequence for crime, you actually have these Black bodies that are being incarcerated in mass because of these discriminatory legislations that are then now being leased out to plantation owners and industry doing the exact same jobs for the exact same people for the exact same no wages that they were doing before slavery was abolished. And you have that system emerge under what's known as the convict leasing system. And so with convict leasing, it's critical to understand that um, whippings, keeping people in chains, And brutal kinds of physical torture and mental abuse are the norm. Um, And a lot of historians actually talk about how convict leasing itself was actually a more brutal system than slavery because convicts who were leased were not owned by slave masters. Um, During slavery, you owned your slaves, so you had a vested interest of keeping them alive and healthy and that kind of thing. But as a convict, you were just leased. So you Mm -hmm. literally would work people to death. And once they die, you just uh, lease a new convict. And so the last thing I want to say that's important, though, is I think some people can think of this and think that it's not a lot of people we're talking about or it didn't produce a lot of revenue. Um, in, Av- in Alabama alone, we know that at least 200,000 African-American men were leased as convicts. And in 1989, convict leasing supplied 73% of the state of Alabama's annual revenue. So this is something that literally keeps the Southern economy afloat after Reconstruction. 
And then the other two forms of racial control, real quick, are just uh, we get the emergence of the KKK right after Reconstruction, and then we also see emergence of lynching as a form of vigilante justice, where we know that from the end of Reconstruction up until 1952, they're documented that 5,500 African Americans were lynched during that period of time. And at the height of lynching in our nation, there was a Black person who was lynched once every four days. So I wasn't going to ask this, but as I'm listening to you, and I've, I've read it in the book, and I've read The New Jim Crow and Just Mercy, and I've watched 13th, and, and every time, and you really, this is one of the things I appreciate so much about your book is you answer this question, but I want our listeners to hear it too. Where was the church when all, when all this was going on? Oh, man. Um, the church. So let me say this. There's always been a countercultural witness of faithfulness and a remnant of the church who was committed to working for racial and social justice in the midst of such unjust realities. So I think it's important to say that because I don't ever want to come off as, you know, condemning the entire body or as if there was not a prophetic witness. Um, But when it comes to this, um, particularly when we talk about the conversation of lynching, one of the most disturbing realities about lynching was that lynchings um, particularly spectacle lynchings, which were lynchings where there would be a mass crowd who would actively participate um, through their support, through their commerce, through um, hiring photographers to come and um, photograph the lynched body as if it was a game bird. Um, historians today actually talk about spectacle lynchings, saying that they function socially the same way that football games do today. Mm. Um, spectacle lynchings, um, the largest one we know on uh, place in this country, took place in the north and it had 20,000 people who were there, who were present. But spectacle lynchings, I think, are most damning in regards to the church because they most oftentimes took place on Sunday afternoons after church and they were well attended by white Christians um, who didn't see a contradiction between going to praise Jesus in the morning and going to participate in the defacing of the image of God in the afternoon. And so I think that's a critical way in which the church is connected to this history of racial and social control. But then when we also talk about lynching, uh, I mean, not lynching, sorry, mass incarceration, when we talk about mass incarceration, the church has a very interesting role in that some of the most, some of the earliest prison reforms um, to try to make prison a more humane, civil place um, were led by Christians, particularly Quakers. Um, But then as you go through the history of incarceration, the church really, a lot of the prison chaplains and leaders who were influencing the church started to go astray and they started to talk about the prison in particular as a furnace of affliction where they talked about Mm -hmm. how ultimately it was the suffering that a prisoner endured during their incarceration that would make them come to grips with the depths of their depravity. And it was only once they confronted the depths of their depravity would they really understand their need for God. And so there became Mm -hmm. this emphasis and this kind of theological support or a punitiveness, abuse, and barbarism that took place behind bars because ultimately there was this belief that that the pain was purifying and it ultimately would lead to a salvific end. And so you had chaplains and you had ministers who were really baptizing a kind of punitive punishment that literally would lead to people being beaten and broken and bruised behind bars um, as a way of saying that ultimately it would lead to their redemption. Man, which is just so opposite of the grace of the gospel, right? Exactly. Um, so I want to read a quote. Um, it's from part two in where you talk about the church's witness and testimony. And what you said was mass incarceration is a byproduct of the church's failure to sustain a witness that subverts the power of empire. 
It is the rotten fruit of the domesticated discipleship King denounces. It is evidence of what transpires when the church forgets its mission, ceases its prophetic witness, and cowers before imperial power. Mm. So I think what I thought of, and you said earlier, we're kind of at this watershed moment in our country right now. So I'm wondering if you could kind of explain what does, you kind of walked us through how we, how we got here, right? But what does mass incarceration look like now? How is it playing out in society and in our communities currently? Yeah, so I talk about there's five real pipelines that are funneling people into incarceration. Because I think sometimes we can talk about mass incarceration as a big system, but we never drill down and actually ask the real pivotal question, who is actually being incarcerated? And so when we actually ask that question, who's being incarcerated, there's actually five pipelines that are really funneling people into uh, our nation's jails, prisons, and detention centers. So the first most people know about is the war on drugs. Um, the next one, a few more people are, are familiar with, which is the school to prison pipeline. And the school to prison pipeline, just for anybody who doesn't know, I talk about the school to prison pipeline as uh, a pipeline that traces the well-worn path of predominantly impoverished urban youth of color from decrepit, underfunded, antiquated schools into luxurious, earmarked, state-of-the-art prisons. Um, the school to prison pipeline illuminates the detrimental impact of zero tolerance policies and high, highlights how these policies are exacerbated by the disproportionate ways they are enforced within our schools. And it really traces how from 1972, there has been this um, really substantial increase in how we have chosen to outsource school punishment. Um, to law enforcement, and as instead of dealing with in-school punishment and through in-house suspension or other policies and principles that would have been a play when me and you were in school, um, but increasingly those things have been outsourced. And we know that the people, the kids who are caught up in the pipeline are disproportionately students who have mental and physical um, impairments students of color, students who come from impoverished backgrounds, or students who have endured trauma in their lifetime or identify as LGBTQ youth. And so, again, there are youth who mm-hmm. are on the margins of society. Um, then the next one, right. uh, the next three pipelines I talk about are really pipelines that we just don't talk about often, um, that are overlooked. Um, the most sinister of which I believe is mm-hmm. the pipeline of mental health. And I talk about, yeah, yeah. I talk about how mental health really, um, we see, we've seen this great deinstitutionalization of communal mental health facilities. And that has led to, uh, Mm -hmm. led up to the point that three years ago, medical professionals in this field bluntly said that prisons are the new asylum. And they say this because, Right now in our nation, there are 44 states plus the District of Columbia where there are people who have have severely diagnosed mental health impairment, impairments who are housed in the state's largest. Uh, there are more people in 44 states that are housed in incarceration and are receiving treatment from the state's largest facility. And The state of Ohio is the worst offender in this regard. They have 10 jails, prisons, or detention centers that have more people with severely diagnosed mental health impairments than are receiving treatment in the state's largest. Um, This problem is so bad that right now there are 90,000 people every year in our nation who are legally designated as incompetent to stand trial which literally means they cannot comprehend why they're being incarcerated, but yet we continue to mm. we continue to incarcerate. And so this is just another grave example that we'll see within this pattern where there are people mm. who need medical mm-hmm. interventions and not incarceration, but we continue to incarcerate them and then ultimately exploit them mm-hmm. in the midst of their incarceration for their labor. Um, the other pipeline that I talk about 
is the privatization of prisons and how the privatization of prisons is really this thing that has really made mass incarceration become this Mm -hmm. economically exploitive system. And within the privatization of prisons, um, private prisons only come on the scene in our nation in 1984. And right around 1980, people start to realize that we're, we're, we're facing a challenge. We are literally running out of spaces within our state and federal facilities to house all the people because of the war on drugs in particular. And there's just literally nowhere else in the country. So at that point in 1980, there were really serious discussions. And in those discussions, we had the choice to either embrace diversion programs, look at resentencing, look at sentencing reform that would have actually lessened the amount of time that people were getting for nonviolent offenses, or we could do what we chose to do, which was to say, okay, there's no more space within our state and federal facilities. Let's hire a third party who will build prisons for us so we can continue to incarcerate people at the same rate. We just won't actually be responsible for supervising or building Mm -hmm. these facilities. And so you actually had the first private prison that emerges in Tennessee in 1984, and the number of private prisons has grown astronomically since then. Private prisons um, have become so lucrative that they have been uh, one of the top five bought and sold stocks on Wall Street over the last couple of years. And with the, when the new administration came into power, uh, CBS Money Watch said that Without a doubt, private prisons will be the mo- one of the most lucrative investments a person can make over the next four yeah. years. And that is directly connected to the fifth pipeline, which I argue is a pipeline that very much mirrors the war on drugs. Um, but it's a pipeline where we haven't used the same kind of phraseology, even though statistically it would be warranted. Mm-hmm. And that is the war on immigration. Yeah, I love that you're using that phrase because that's really what's happening. I mean, it is it is so blatant. I mean, from 1990 to 2000, there was a 610% increase in, immigra- in arrest for immigration offenses. From 1998 to 2011, the, the percentage increases 145%. And Why that pipeline is so critically connected to the pipeline on uh, the privatization of prisons is that 90% of people who are arrested for immigration offenses are housed within private prisons. And so literally, private prison industry would cease to exist because they would not have bodies to populate the private prison were it not for the punitive legislation that exists uh, in regards to the war on immigration. And I'll close that part of my answer by uh, talking about a federal bed mandate that most people would be shocked to know exists. But in 2010, um, it was a mandate that was introduced by a Democrat. And now I want to pause there and say that this is important because people have tried to depict the war on drugs or mass incarceration and all these things as if they're just purely Republican agenda. Mass incarceration is a bipartisan Mm -hmm. reality. Um, Both Republicans Mm -hmm. and Democrats play critical roles in expediting um, these wars and actually making mass incarceration evolve into the systemic reality it is today. And so when we talk about it in these partisan ways, we're never going to get to the point where we can really critically examine the system. And so in 2010, a Democrat by the name of Robert Byrd introduced a congressional directive that mandates ICE to maintain an average of 34,000 detainees nightly on immigration offenses. And so I think that's critical for us to understand. Um, and, And as Christians, we shouldn't be surprised, though, because Scripture tells us for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And when we talk about mass incarceration, yeah. we're talking about a system that is literally driven by the love of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like we just need a minute to absorb all of what you said, because it's just, it's so heavy. Um, 
I wanted to ask you to speak a minute on a couple of those pipelines. So you mentioned the school to prison pipeline. What was the one that you said after that? I'm uh, school to prison pipeline. Then it was, oh, uh, mental health. Yeah. Okay. So those are two. So those are two topics that are in the news a lot right now because of what's happened in Parkland and those students um, really not letting the conversation die. Um, And so I just wonder as someone who has all of this knowledge that you do on the school to prison pipeline and is it RSO? SRO, school resource. Yep. SRO. Okay, we didn't have those when I was in school, like you said earlier. So between the funding that goes into putting school resource officers into schools and then the mental health component where we're literally, instead of treating people for the health issues and diagnoses that they have, we're locking them up. Like, How does that hit you when you read all of the vitriol that's on the internet and social media and what people are saying about you know, it's a mental health issue where we need more guns in schools. Like, how does that hit you as someone who knows so much? About yeah, I think topics? that's a it's funny that you ask that question, because there's this really ironic connection between um, the school to prison pipeline and the school shootings that have been happening. And so and even within the history of school resource officers. So school resource officers actually come on the scene as in response to people knowing that there is this um, this long legacy of tension between police and communities of color. And so you actually get the first school resource officers that come on mm-hmm. the scene in the 1950s in Flint, Michigan, ironically enough. Um, and so it is in that space where school resource officers are introduced into schools to reestablish a trust and a connectivity and a, a positive relationship between communities of color and officers. And so school resource officers, when they first come into school, they're doing um, things like aiding a gym coach or serving as a school counselor or they're just resource personnel, but they're not actually enforcing the law or the rules of the school, but they're there just as kind of supplemental aids to promote good communal relations. So that's how they start. But then after Columbine, Mm -hmm. the role of school resource officers actually starts to shift. And you actually have school resource officers for the first time who are no longer serving as personnel aides, but they're actually serving as enforcement of the law and the rules within schools. And then that only exacerbates after Sandy Hook. And so after both of those school shootings, you see this large um, call from parents and community for increased number of school resource officers but then also for the role of school resource officers to shift to the point that school resource officers are now in our schools policing schools and reinforcing the law and actually becoming this supplemental way in which we can um, export the responsibility for school discipline out, off of the principal or the disciplinarians onto the officers. But I think the iron, irony is that you see this increased funding for school SROs come after these school shootings, which disproportionately are happening in affluent uh, Caucasian communities. But when it actually comes to where school resource right. officers are actually deployed and where they are actually disproportionately allocated, they end up going mm-hmm. to community impoverished communities of color. So... What you get is that the funding that actually allows school resource officers to exist in the number that they do is directly rooted in a problem that's happening in affluent Caucasian communities. But who ends up bearing the brunt of school resource officers actually existing and particularly how the existence of school resource officers is directly correlated to the number of Mm -hmm. kids who get caught up in the school to prison pipeline, 
we see that that disproportionately ends up manifesting itself within communities of color. And so that's a great irony that I have not seen anybody really talk about. Um, but the whole reason why officers exist, especially they exist in the number, the mass number that they do today, is in direct correlation to these school shootings. But the people who are actually bearing the brunt and the disproportionate place in which they are actually enforcing the law is not happening in these communities where the shootings took place. And then the last piece of that that's really critically important is that through research, we find out the school resource officers receives most school resource officers, up to 90% of them have actually received zero training on what does it mean to enforce the law within a school versus enforcing the law out on the streets. And so what you commonly see happening is you see the criminalization of juvenile mischief, where juvenile mischief is actually treated as a criminal offense because officers don't know about early childhood development. And they haven't under they haven't taken any courses or any specific specialized training about what does it mean to police to serve as a police presence in schools versus out. Which is just absurd. I mean, it's it's outrageous. Yeah, and that's why you get that's why you get things like Ben Fields that happens in South Carolina where a little girl is slant, yeah. you know, yanked out of her sleep, uh, seat and dragged across the classroom. That's why you get all of these instances, because officers have been trained to, you know, police mm-hmm. the law out on the streets and not specifically with children. in the classroom. With children. Yeah, with children. Oh, okay. So we need some gospel. How, how, how <laughs> does the gospel inform our response to all of this? Well, first, it's us realizing the the fundamental connection between the conversation about incarceration and scripture. Uh, most people have really failed to grapple with the reality that four of the books of our Bible were written in the midst of incarceration. Like, literally, the books, uh, the Pauline prison epistles is what they're known <laughs> as, um, Four of them were written in the midst of incarceration. And so, and then on top of that, I think we we really have not wrestled with the, the scriptural call to be present behind mm-hmm. bars. Matthew 25 says that all Christians have a responsibility to be engaged with the criminal justice system. It doesn't say some Christians, progressive Christians, socially or social justice Christians, it says Christians are supposed to be present behind bars. And I oftentimes say, like, the church doesn't know because the church has not gone. We don't know because we don't go. And if we went, we would know these realities. We would know about the disparities. We would know about the defacement of the image of God that is happening to so many people on an everyday basis behind bars. I mean, right now in our nation, we have 90,000 people who are subjected to solitary confinement on an everyday basis. For people who don't know, solitary confinement consists of somebody being locked up in a 12 by 7 uh, foot uh, cell, and they are locked in darkness for 23 of the 24 hours a day, given access to human contact and sunlight for one hour a day. That is not incarceration. That is torture. Mm-hmm. And we have to have more realistic and honest conversations about these things. But if we're not present, we can't do it. And so, you know, Jesus cares so much about this and, he, you know, feels so strongly that he said, you know, when you visited the prisoner, you didn't just visit the least of these. You literally visited me. And so mm-hmm. because we failed to be present with Jesus behind bars, we don't really know what's going on. But then on top of that, you turn to Hebrews 13.3. It says that we are supposed to remember the incarcerated as if we ourselves were incarcerated. If the church were to do that, this conversation would be fundamentally different. But, but then, you know, on top of all of that, I, you know, I always like to say the harsh reality is that if you literally take away Christ, uh, criminals from the Bible, there is no Bible. Like, 
There's no Bible word not for criminals. Not only were four of the books of the right. Bible, Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, Philippians, all written in, in the midst of incarceration, but literally, if you take away all of the criminals from the gospel, there is no good news for us to inherit. There is no good news for us to share. I mean, literally, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, John the Baptist, Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, Samson, Hananiah the seer, Joseph, Malachi, Stephen, Jeremiah, Peter, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Silas. All of these men were criminals, much less some of the other people who should have been criminals who committed criminal offenses like Moses and David, but weren't incarcerated. And so I think it makes us, it should make us ask different questions about what how we respond to people who actually have gone to, uh, who've made mistakes, who've been incarcerated and come out of incarceration and are forced to uh, wear the scarlet letter of incarceration for the rest of their lives in a way that legitimates our discrimination against them, our alienation against them, and our our doubts of them. Um, And it should really make us ask if we really believe the faith proclamations that we make every Sunday when we say that nothing can separate us from the love of God or no person is irredeemable. Because the harsh reality is that for a lot of us, we actually do believe that there are certain things that you can do that can separate you from the love of God. And there are certain people that are actually irredeemable because their, their offenses are so grotesque. And so I think these us understanding the connection between incarceration and scripture should compel us to ask more faithful questions and most more sober questions of ourselves. And lastly, I'll say um, in the book of Acts, uh, we we usually point to the book of Acts as the church in its healthiest expression, where it's flourishing in a way that we don't see any other time in the history of the church. Um, oftentimes today when people talk about problems of the church, they say, well, we just need to be like the early church and back in the day in Acts. Um, but it's so funny that Acts has more examples of Christians who are actually incarcerated for bearing witness to the gospel in countercultural ways than any other book in the Bible. So one could actually deduce that there is a correlation between Christians prophetically bearing witness to the gospel and the kingdom of God in the midst of worldly empires to the point that those empires actually put Christians in jail. And that there's a direct correlation between that kind of prophetic witness and the growth and expansion of the gospel. Right. So I want to be respectful of your time, but and but before I get to my last question, yeah. could you talk a little bit about what restorative justice looks like? So sort of like what is the alternative? And one of the things you say in the book is that crime is always a communal offense, never simply an individual violation. Could you tease that out a little bit? Yeah, so... The alternative to restorative justice is punitive justice, which is what we have today. And within within punitive justice, literally, um, our justice, our criminal justice systems today says the justice has been administered and has been manifested when a punishment is issued for a crime. So within that framework, justice literally means means punishment. Mm -hmm. And. So within restorative justice, restorative justice says that for justice to actually be made manifest, restoration has to be manifested. Like restoration is part and parcel of what it means to ultimately achieve justice, not just the distribution of punishment. And so within restorative justice, restorative justice says, so let's just put you, me, and you. So say I... Say I rob you, and in my robbing of you, my robbery doesn't just have an impact on you. It has a communal impact. It it affects your family. It affects your loved ones. It affects your neighbors. It affects the entire community. Mm -hmm. Um, And when Mm -hmm. what restorative justice says is restorative justice isn't soft on crime, but it says that Criminal offenders are held accountable for their offenses through relationships of accountability. 
Um, and so mm. within the discernment of what justice looks like, restorative justice says that not only do you as the offend, uh, the offended party have to be a part of what discerning what justice looks like, but so do the other people in the community who are affected by the crime. And through walking mm-hmm. with me in a relationship of accountability, there is an establishment of a standard that I have to meet and I have to hold true to in the midst of my rehabilitation. But I can only do that with communal support. I myself am not strong enough, capable enough to be able to do that in isolation by myself. But ultimately, after a certain time has passed and you feel comfortable as the victim, the thing that makes reconciliation really possible within restorative justice is that it says once the victim feels comfortable and safe enough, the victim has the right and the responsibility to come and actually address the offender and actually speak directly to the offender, letting the offender know the depth of the consequences that their offense had on them and the broader community. And that direct correlation, that direct communication between victim and offender has been proven to produce reconciliation much more than our present system, which literally mutes the victim. So our present system gives the victim no voice. The victim has no say on what accountability Mm -hmm. looks like, reconciliation looks like, or what the punishment for the offender should look like. And so restorative justice ultimately says that justice is ultimately manifested when communities are reconciled. Once the victim and the offender can establish through relationships of of accountability what it looks like to pursue life together again um, under the confines of a reestablished network of um, community, but also a reestablished network of what it looks like to move forward together with accountability and healthy reintegration. And so that's that's the critical difference between our present system and restorative justice. Yeah. And that's how it's always a criminal, uh, a communal offense. But, you know, just for Christians more specifically, and I'll round out with this, I'll just say that um, the Bible consistently reveals that restoration, not punitiveness, is at the heart of God's justice. Uh, Divine justice is restorative and reconciling, not retributive and isolating. Um, The restorative nature of God's Mm -hmm. justice is woven all throughout scripture. And biblically, we see that God works amid brokenness, restoring victims, communities, and offenders. And the church's inability to respond to crime in a biblically rooted way that testifies to the restorative nature of God has really emboldened a a system of retribution. And divine justice really entails people being reconciled to God, to each other, the community, and themselves. But rather than rehabilitating, we presently have a system that quarantines people who causes harm. And in the midst of quarantining them, we do harm to those people instead of rehabilitating them in ways that allow them to re-enter mm-hmm. society in healthy ways. And so instead of supporting a system that merely punishes, I say that Christians must pursue a justice system that rebuilds community, affirms human dignity, and seeks God's shalom. The church has the power to help transform our criminal justice system. But if reconciled communities are ever going to become the true aim of our justice system, the church must lead the way in advocating for a system that gives opportunities for authentic rehabilitation, lasting transformation, and healthy reintegration. And I just end by saying, you know, we are not all called to the same thing, but we are all called to something. Um, every church and every Christian has a role. Yeah. So that's that's my last question. But before I get to that, one more thing. So I think part of the problem with where we are now is we as a church Big C Church have lost our prophetic imagination for what these biblical, like things that were alive and well in the church in Acts. We've just lost the ability to imagine what that looks like now. But in the book, you actually give examples of places where restorative justice is being worked out, right? So this isn't like some pie in the sky idea where relationships are restored and people are brought back into shalom with the community and with God. Like it's actually working in other places. 
Yeah, restorative justice is a tried and true practice. It's been tried internationally and domestically. Uh, restorative justice is being implemented in some of the uh, urban contexts within our nation that are receiving, that are having the most disproportionate number of students who are being shuttled through the school to prison pipeline. And it's been proven time and time again to actually be something that allows more kids to stay within the classroom, to continue to receive education and to go on and live healthy, productive uh, lives as upstanding citizens. Because all too often kids who get caught up in that are caught up in it because of the trauma that they've endured and they don't have a healthy place to be able to express that trauma and actually um, you know, explore it in ways that help them understand that there are healthier alternatives to the destructive, dysfunctional behavior that they might be engaged in. So yes, this is a tried and true practice, and I have an entire chapter talking about where it's been implemented and the success report. Okay, so what can we do? Many of our listeners would consider themselves ordinary people living pretty ordinary lives, but I love what you say that we're all called to do something. So what are some options for what that something could look like? Yeah, so I say every congregation should be in, engaged in one of four ways. Um, through prevention, through ministry to the incarcerated, to walking alongside of families who have incarcerated loved ones to the reentry process. So I'll, I'll break down prevention for us in, a, in more tangible ways to give you examples of what I mean. So within prevention, yeah. um, every church has the ability to adopt a school. Um, and within adopting schools, what this generally will look like is finding the school within you, the closest proximity to you, where you know the teachers are literally pulling money out of their minuscule paychecks and actually taking their own personal money and buying Supplies for their students because there's not there because there's inadequate funding um, in that same school. You'll also see that there's a disproportionate number of students who are on free and reduced lunches. Um, and we we know that in many cases when students are on free and reduced lunches, that's the only nutritious meal that the student might get all day long. But what we never ask is what happens to those same students during the holidays or during the summer when school is not in session. How do those kids eat if they're dependent upon the food and the nutrition that they get from schools? Churches can volunteer during the summer to actually function as summer feeding programs where you literally can get resources from the school system and actually be the distributor for kids who need, need that nutrition. And through becoming this the source of physical good news where their physical needs are being made, met, the church can actually establish relationships and actually learn to do life with those on the margins in ways that invite them into community in new life-giving ways that actually make them curious about this God that we serve and actually open up tons of evangelistic opportunities. Um, then another very tangible thing is that, um, so I, I used to be a pastor in California. And when I was in California, one of the things that I, I learned was the 70% of the incarcerated population in California comes out of the foster care. And so knowing realities like that helps us to actually um, envision how our ministries, our missions, and our dollars could be better allocated to become a disruption to the system. And so what would it look like for the church to actually expand its definition of family particularly around the holidays when we know that foster care youth are actually um, most <laughs> likely to uh, cr commit uh, criminal offenses, mostly because they are coming back to school situations where all of their peers are talking mm -hmm. about these jovial encounters that they have with family and friends and loved ones, or they're showing off their new gifts that they got, and they are, you know, having these great times, and these kids right. are just that they don't have that kind of support and that kind of investment in their lives. What would it look like for the church to be intentional about creating space at our dinner table or within our house around the holiday seasons to take in and show Christ's love to kids who are caught up in the system? Um, that's a very tangible way that we can interrupt and we can intervene 
And then also uh, we can within yeah we can serve as mentors and tutors. Um, most people know about how there's been a correlation between uh, the reading and math scores for third to fifth graders and projections for how many prisons and jails that they will ultimately need to build. Um, and so if the kid is considered behind on um, reading and math scores between third and fifth grade, there are projections that they actually make to know how many more prisons that are needed to be built. So the church can tangibly intervene by helping kindergartners, first graders, second graders to make sure that by the time kids get to third grade, they're on track or ahead of track um, as a way to try to curtail the system. So there's very tangible things that the church and everyday ordinary people can do. And it doesn't even cost you money. Mm -hmm. It just costs you your time and your commitment. Yeah. One of the things you say in the book is how this system of mass incarceration is preying on the most vulnerable in our society. And those are exactly the people that Jesus told us to be for. And, and, and we're just not doing a very good job of it presently. Yeah. Michelle Alexander says that criminals, it turns out, are the one social group in America we have permission to hate. In colorblind America, criminals are the new whipping boys. They are entitled to no respect and little moral concern. And the harsh reality is that the church has ceased to bear mm -hmm. a different witness in regards to this conversation than the rest of the world. We are just as prone to think about the incarcerated in the same dehumanizing ways as everybody else. And we are just as prone to actually want to distance ourselves from them. And we support legislation that actually is a stumbling block for our brothers and sisters who encounter Christ behind bars and actually want to come out and change their lives. Uh, we support legislation because we fear those people and we continue to endorse get tough on crime, law and order, three strikes you're out, zero tolerance policies that really make it virtually impossible for somebody to truly have a second yeah. life. And as Christians, if anybody should know that we should never forever define someone by the worst things they ever done, mm -hmm. it should be us. Because we know that we are literally only part of the family of God because of grace. And if we don't understand how the grace of Christ that allows us to become children of God must mark our lives, and that grace should be extended to other people who commit criminal offenses, and um, then we forget who and whose we are. And when that happens, we continue to support the same kind of policies and practices that the rest of the world does. And so I say as Christians, when we don't understand that the grace that first um, allowed us to be redeemed and renewed and restored by God, while we were yet enemies of God, while we were sinners, uh, Christ didn't wait for us to get our act together, but Christ died for us while we were sinners. Um, when we don't expand and extend that same grace to other people who have sinned and committed criminal offenses, then we, for, we forfeit our birthright as Christians. We forget who and whose we are. Such a good word, Dominique, and I'm sure it's not always well received. So I just want to thank you for <laughs> for putting um, just so much of yourself into this book and for spending the time talking with us about it. It's so so important. So I just I thank you for doing it and for continuing to um, remind us all of whose we are and who we are. Um, for our listeners, where can they follow you online and keep up with your work and what you're doing? Yeah, so you can follow me online. Uh, my website is dominiquegilliard.com. And then on Facebook, I can be found um, by just searching Dominique Du Bois Gilliard. And then on Twitter, I am at ddgilliard. And yeah, that's good enough. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so, so much for, for chatting with us and sharing all of this. It's such important work. Uh, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. 
Hey friends, Kayla here and Lindsay couldn't have been more right when she said that Dominique is doing such important work and really we are honored to have him on Upside Down Podcast. If you would like to hear more episodes talking about issues of God's Upside Down Kingdom, culture and spirituality, please find us at UpsideDownPodcast.com on Instagram or Upside Down Podcast and sometimes we do giveaways and if you want to link arms with us, you can also go to upside down podcast slash give and you can join other people here in the US and around the world who are linking arms with us by giving um, financially so we can keep this podcast going and we have some bonus uh, content for our patrons so if that is something you're interested in check it out. Of course, go follow Dominique and join us uh, online as we continue to have these conversations. We have a lot more in store, so stick around for our, our next episode coming up. But until then, thank you for listening. Share this with your friends. If something has um, triggered something in you, in your mind, in your heart, and your soul, let's continue to keep having these conversations. Thank you for listening from Shannon. Lindsay and I, and everyone else behind the scenes of Upside Down Podcast. Until next time.